Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become a villain. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. Three hundred years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy hair season. Welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun. Especially when we're done with Maimon masturbation and done being the hero of a thousand facials. When we write our own gospel and live our own myth. Welcome to the audio version of Aeon Byte Live, episode 29. Raw, uncensored, and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. James Bean returned to the virtual Alexandria to discuss ancient vegetarianism. That included Gnostics, Christians, Jews, and even pagans. This also included these scenes, Pythagoreans, Therapeutae, Ebionites, and more. Was Jesus a vegetarian? Was Paul or John the Baptist against vegetarians? We also covered medieval Gnostics like the Manichaeans and Cathars. Thanks for those of you who continually support this blasphemy. I can't do it without you. Please continue to help me grow this red pill cafeteria. 
We need Gnosis more than ever, and we've only just begun reaching those who need to wake up. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or guests and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. But enough of my short drivel. Let us to the interview with James Bean. And keep in mind that in a few days I'll drop a show on several Gnostic texts, including the Gospel of Truth, Secret John, and the Gospel of Mary. And following, we'll deal with the Archons in a very grim but engaging perspective. Yes, heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it just is, whether or not you eat meat. We are live to the world. Welcome, everybody, to Aeon Byte Live. And, of course, we'll let people go into the chat room. And welcome to the desert of the real, everybody. Let me make sure everything's working on my end. I've got a thousand things going here. Awesome, awesome. Well, with us, we have, first of all, we've got the occult fan himself back at the uh, virtual Alexandria to help out. How are you doing, Nate? Thanks for being here. Hey, Miguel. Thank you so much for um, having me on. Always good to have you, my friend. And also, we've got back after a pretty long... Yeah, a pretty long pause. I think it was, uh, I, I just looked at when we did our first podcast, October 7th, 2015. Man, time oh. just flies. But uh, James, we've got James Bean. James, Namaste. Back. Yeah, nice to be back. Yeah, great to have you back after such a, a long pause. So it's going to be good. And again, we covered a lot of ground in our last interview many moons ago. So I'm sure since then, James probably has more research he wants to share, especially if we can cover some of the uh, vegetarian uh, tendencies of later Gnostics like the Manichaeans, <clears throat> excuse me, and the Cathars and all that good stuff and what more evidence we have as there's more insights on these texts and still a lot of work to be done with these texts so for a little house cleaning for those of you live there if you have questions for james please uh, try to put a lot of question marks at the end or write them in caps uh occult fan and i will try to glean your questions for james and uh, if you have a super chat of course you will get put at the top of the queue, if you would. Did I lose you, Nate? I'm seeing him speaking <laughs> into a microphone. You're on mute, dude. Yeah, we have a lot of feedback from... Um, Did I lose some, you, Nate? No, everything's... Yeah, see, it's going on some feedback right now. seeing him speaking into a microphone. I think, do you have yours under... I think yours needs to be on mute. What about you guys there at the chat room? How do we sound? 
Testing one, two, three. Yeah, I think we sound okay. It might be, you might have to put uh, one of yours on mute there. Yeah, I see you on chat. Sorry about that. So we don't if get we, a repeat sound loop. Yeah, yeah. If there is a feedback, guys, in the chat room, let us know, and we will uh, we will jump and fix these technical issues but i think everything sounds fine nobody's saying anything in the chat room uh so all good so anyway where was it yes if you have questions please uh put them on caps put some question marks at the end super chats will be up at the queue we want to keep this into a historical perspective or maybe as james's perspective on his life we don't want to get into any debates if you want to debate about veganism or meat eating or vegetarian feel free to go at it in the chat room but this is not really a social uh you might say discussion if you would or debate this is simply sharing some awesome historical fact about these ancient esoteric movements and what they did and everything else so other than that uh, let's get started for those again october 7th 2015 and that's interesting james because back then I was not a full vegetarian. And even today, I'm a full vegetarian. But once in a while, I will eat shrimp. I will eat fish. But for the most part, I completely stay... Well, for the most part, I completely stay away from chicken, pork, or beef. And my decision in 2015 was basically as a protest against the horrible treatment of uh, animals and our corporatized uh, food mass-produced system. And of course, you know, I watched the videos and all that and of course it was more of a feeling it was being at a restaurant here in chicago and Hmm. where everything was meat and i had one of those mystic experiences where i could feel almost the pain of these animals and it was my my wife and she is still not she still eat meats but she told me basically uh you know if what does the gospel of thomas says it's not what you put in your mouth that will defile you what comes out of your mouth but if you, I feel if you put violence in your mouth, it's probably better not to do so. And I feel if we, we are, as I get older, I realize as humans, we are sensitive. We absorb what is around you as sort of uh, with algorithms or epigenetic systems. And I feel that we are absorbing the pain and suffering of these animals and it does affect them. And I feel definitely more peaceful. But at the time that I talked to you, James, I wasn't a full vegetarian. It was one of those things where I started, oh, I'm not going to eat meat on Sundays. I'm not going to eat meat on Friday. And then I sort of incrementally, so by that uh, Christmas 2015, I was fully vegetarian. It's usually but, a transition for most. Yeah, kind of a transition. You know, I, I was kosher before I was veg, and then I was vegan after being veg for a while, you know. <laughs> yes, yes, and I know... Uh, one of these days I will have to face perhaps going vegan. Again, it's something I'm trying to think. I think I, I like to follow Mark Passio, who's uh, kind of this badass anarchist. And he, you know, he walks around with his guns and all that. And he's a vegan. And he's basically made a very <laughs> good case that you can switch to veganism and still be very healthy, athletic and all that. And of course, there's many examples. Cory Booker, there are, there's NBA stars, football stars who are vegan. But enough of my drivel as i say tell us about your journey into vegetarianism and the esoteric itself 
And, and Ted Nugent's son, ironically, is vegan. And that's kind of fun. <laughs> I find that fun, you know. Well, we always uh, rebel against our parents. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and that's a spectacular example uh, there. Uh, well, as I mentioned in my, the original Aeon Byte interview, I got to become the heretic I am today by reading the New Testament book of Jude. And in Jude, Jude quotes the book of First Enoch chapter 1, and was like, whoa, this is not in the table of contents of the Old Testament. And so from there, I started collecting these writings, so apocryphal writings, Dead Sea Scrolls, and then the Nag Hammadi Library came out. Uh, and so before you know it, I was reading, you know, Buddha Sutras and Upanishads, and you know, it just kept on going, collecting scriptures and uh, texts and things. And so, but that makes you, by definition, a kind of heretic just to know about Gospel of Thomas and Odes of Solomon and Trimorphic Protonoa, which is a fun name. <laughs> and so, just to know about the existence of alternate Christianities and Judaism, Sethians and Valentinians and Manichaeans, puts you at odds with orthodoxy and the accepted Sunday school view of the King James Version dropping from the sky, getting caught by King James, you know, direct from God, or caught by early apostles, as the case may be. And so it's just this mind-blowing exploration of the, you know, alternative views of mysticism and prayer and diet, uh, you know, that we're focusing on today this evening, uh, just, just the unaccepted, not the mainstream views, not the Sunday school notions, uh, the carnism that we inherit, the, the expected beliefs, you know, that all goes out the window, you know, as we explore the apocryphal and the extra canonical. That indeed, it opens a whole new, uh, whole new vistas of possibilities and what was going on. And yes, and as we talked about in our last interview, you uh, are a practitioner of uh, Satmat and Gnosticism, and they both are very complimentary. In fact, you're not alone in this. I mean, other guests have from scholars like Robert Price to guests have said it's pretty much the same thing. So maybe briefly tell the audience what are the, the parallels and obviously how it works out so well for you because you're not really making a choice. <laughs> right. For me, uh, Gnostics were just an earlier batch of uh, mystics, you know, another branch of the mystic tree, kind of like uh, the Kabbalah saints and the Sufis and there's the saints of India uh, and so it's just this long apostolic succession or, or lineage and, and actually a whole family tree of mystic schools of spirituality and their lineages going back. And so the Gnostics are just a bit further back uh, there. And they had an esoteric they're part of the esoteric tradition, so they have a spiritual practice, which is kind of a secret thing, secret names of God, like those uh, four lights and, uh, uh, you know, the names mentioned in Trimorphic Protonor. There's El Elith, and I forget some of the, the others. There are the four lights and uh, 
it totals to five names, kind of Hebrew-sounding names in certain Sethian texts, and that was their mantra. And each of those names corresponds with a heavenly realm. And for them to chant those names would be a way to outrank and defeat the archons and ascend. So sort of like passwords to higher regions and so on. And so Sant Maud is, is very much all about that ascension of the soul through the, the uh, planes back to the nameless one, the nameless God in the eighth plane. And in some Gnostic texts, there's reference to the eighth and the nameless God, the one oh, yeah. who has no name. Uh, Gospel of Judas uh, has a reference to that. Uh, nothing about a horse with no name, but there is a nope. God with no name. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, the, the God that's given many names is nameless <laughs> at the same time. Uh, so, yeah, it's an esoteric system, and it has teachers, lineages of uh, masters. And there are Sant-Mat books on um, Gnosticism and mystical Christianity, the the Gospel of Jesus in Search of His Original Teachings by John Davidson, who also wrote a book on the Odes of Solomon and the Robe of Glory and a bunch of other texts. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, the Gnostic Mystery by Andrea Diem Lane is another one about the Gnostics and Sant-Mat parallels. Meditation, other dimensions, vegetarianism, uh, an initiation into the mysteries, which is sort of a secret thing, but it's really just a meditation practice, you know, uh, transcending the, the world of the flesh. And uh, through the single eye or third eye, entering into inner space and becoming an off-worlder, if we can, to some degree, one degree or another. Sort of an attempt at a conscious near-death experience, only a little more tame, a little more gradual, <laughs> if you will. And yeah, vegetarianism is part of that. And I think for the Gnostics, it was transcending the flesh and the material plane. Uh, but they got it from uh, the Pythagoreans and I think the Essenes were influenced by the Pythagoreans and the early Christians were the grandkids of the Essenes within Judaism. So, yeah, all of these paths are connected. Keith Akers, who wrote a book about uh, original Christianity, uh, says that that Ebionite Jewish Christianity kind of eventually morphed into the Sufis of Islam. And that's where they ended up. And he quotes uh, uh, some text that says, Rabia of Basra was a vegetarian. And, and actually, I found some vegan verses of Rumi, the, the king of the great Sufi poets, and was specifically saying that he abstained from milk as well as meat. So that puts him into the vegan <laughs> camp. So, yeah, esoteric uh, Judaism kind of morphed into Sufism at some point. I think Gnostic systems can adapt to different theologies. Okay, God is a trinity now. Okay, we can work with that. <laughs> Allah, all right. Allah is the seal of the prophets, or maybe Hermes Trismegistus. You know, it, it, there are different names, but the system is pretty much the same. Uh, just different person, you know, Seth or Jesus or Allah, <laughs> Trinity, <laughs> you know, but the same esoterica kind of underneath 
the, the same Linux operating system, no matter what the, the distribution is, so Ubuntu or Linux or uh, Mint or, you know, one of the others. Same operating system. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, you know, I do not have the coronavirus. Uh, just because I coughed, I'm not <laughs> stocking on toilet paper. I don't know everybody's stocking on toilet paper. Getting ready for the apocalypse. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The zombie. Well, That's good be. for our business, though. The podcast world will all be at home, self-isolating, trying to not get the virus. And that means we'll be on the Internet. There you go. It's always great for us introverts. A good time for us. We've been preparing this yeah. for all, all of our yeah. lives to be in a room talking yeah. to others. <laughs> Listening to podcasts, reading books, and meditating, and ordering from Amazon toilet paper, as it were. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, uh, I saw a question, a super chat for 100th Monkey. Uh, I will get to you. We'll talk more or less about diet later on, but we want to keep it historical for now so we get the origins. But before that, right. James, what in Saint Matt, you don't have the sort of visceral rejection of matter and the gods of this world and the sort of anarchic thrust that you do with the Sethians and the Ophites and the Manichaeans, do you? It's more, is it more non-dualistic? Well, uh, it's there, but, and, I, and I'm not really quite clear on what it was, how that was like in Gnosticism as a historic path in terms of meditation practice it's about tuning out the outer world and going within so that is as how that is viewed now whether the valentinians if when they said reject the world and you know uh rise above if that's what they meant or i mean cult groups can go in weird directions with that you know they can just you know, want to build some secret commune in the, in the wilderness or something. And that's their rejecting of the world. Uh, in terms of meditation, you know, that's really all it is. It's just temporarily tuning out the world of the five senses and kind of creating your own sensory deprivation uh, situation, a dimly lit room, quiet, dark environment, soul travel, out of body, you know, excursions. Uh, so that, by definition, is sort of a temporary rejecting of the world and the, the five senses and it, in order to explore inner space. It's kind of like astronomy. You take the lens off the, the telescope and you point in this direction and look for that heavenly light from beyond. And that's kind of like mysticism, really. Uh, only the third eye is the lens uh, to be looked through. Uh, but yeah, there's not really an antisocial uh, aspect. Some some paths are, uh, I mean, cer certain Gnostic texts made it seem like they hated matter and hated the world. But I don't know um, if they really were like that or if that was just a theological, metaphysical. It was a, yeah, it was a mythological. I mean, if you look at history, the early Christians and the more uh, intense Jews were far more anti no They broke more laws. They were more aesthetic. Uh, the Gnostics, as we look, they were part of the universities. They were part of culture. They was, again, I think they were just more uh, politically anarchists and they were more... Uh, I guess, uh, descriptive in their mythology, if you would. Yeah, some were debating with uh, Plotinus there. And so I think that they were around. Um, 
I think in the case of the Nag Hammadi people, uh, the, the, I think my theory of, of the Nag Hammadi is that you have a bunch of these Valentinian Gnostics carrying scriptures with them, and they really love the idea of joining St. Pacomius's monastic communities. Uh, and so they just brought their Gnostic scriptures with them and like the idea of this uh, all, uh, intentional community in the desert. So that's a kind of a rejection of the world to move into uh, a monastery. And I think that's where some of those Nag Hammadi texts came from, actually, how they got to Nag Hammadi. Um, and so that's one thing. But mostly in Santmat, people just live their ordinary lives, you know, workaday world. Uh, situations and don't uh, move into an ashram. Now, there are some ashrams, but they tend to be places of meeting, not really where everyone moves into. <laughs> uh, you know, like a monastery would be in Christianity or uh, those interesting Pacomian monasteries of fourth century Egypt that we associate with texts, copying of ancient manuscripts. Uh, Indeed, yes, and of course, the the rebellion really starts with your ideas in your heart. You know, not going around breaking things or breaking the law or all that. So I think that's a, the Gnostics were certainly controversial. They were disliked. They were persecuted. But it was because of their ideas were so radical, and you couldn't spread these ideas about, as you say, inner light, freedom of the individual, uh, finding your own uh, God that beyond all the other gods. So I think that's what right that's what happened yeah uh every they hated everyone back then yeah the orthodox christianity made it illegal to be anything other than orthodox christian so it was illegal to copy documents it was illegal to assemble so uh yeah uh, uh epiphanius he, he didn't like the Ebionites. He didn't like the Valentinians. He didn't like, <laughs> he, had a, he wrote like four or five volumes against every possible religion of the Roman Empire that he could name <laughs> and said bad things about them. Um, so, yeah, they didn't really, Orthodox Christianity didn't like other groups existing. Uh, and some of them were kind of on the Catholic side, like the Cathars of France were not really all that different from the Catholics, really? I mean, you know, some of those folks that were burnt at the stake, uh, who was that? The, uh, Marguerite Perret, who authored that book, The Mirror of Simple Souls. I mean, this person would pass for a Catholic these days. They just cross their T's slightly differently. But, but in earlier times, oh, they were this terrible heretic, you know. And I think the Valentinians probably would fit into almost Catholicism in a way. They had their own mass, I guess. Um, so, you know, just slightly different, you know, than the mainstream. But Yeah, but I think the Gnostics certainly were rejected, not just by the Catholics, but uh, the Persian Empire came down upon many. Uh, yes. Islam has come down upon the Gnostics, the pagans, when they yes. went to Asia. So yes. there's just something the Sufis have suffered against their own, in, within their own religion. They've oh, gotten their absolutely. ass. So yeah. There's something about the Gnostic spirit that just really ticks people off. So um, Yeah, Manny almost had a world religion at one point. From, from west to east, uh, if you want to count the Cathars of France, uh, uh, all the way to China. 
And, you know, if they had no concept of freedom of religion or human rights, no Amnesty International. And so if the, if the emperor or the king, the monarch likes you, then you get to flourish and be funded by the state. And then he kicks, kicks off and then is replaced by someone else. And he don't like you at all. And all of a sudden, that's right. You know, then you are eradicated from existence, persecuted. And all that's left are some archaeological digs and, you know, the turf and fragments and some bones and buried, you know, jars with writings inside. Uh, you know, no next of kin. You know, they're all gone. The Gnostics are like annihilated, you know, in Egypt and, and the Manichaeans were sort of dismembered uh, all the way to China sooner or later. You know, the favorable kings died off and were replaced by hostile forces. Um, and so, yep, now they're mostly gone. I guess there are a few Manichaeans still hanging on in India. <laughs> I've heard the same thing. There is a couple, is two, three, yeah, two or three, <laughs> <laughs> a few. together with a few hundred Zoroastrians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think India has a few Manichaeans, mm -hmm. uh, a few Manichaean shrines, and and you know, left over. Uh, and there's some interesting remains in China. I don't know about living Manichaeans, but there are these writings, the the Jesus Sutras that have been written about that are by this group called the church of the light, which is actually a very Manichaean name. And they were, they were like a composite of Manichaean and Nestorian Taoist and Buddhist all in one. Uh, their writings are pretty fascinating too. There's a book called the Jesus sutras, which is, a, and they were a vegetarian religion. Uh, yeah. I've read it. You think it's authentic or, Oh yeah, there was a group there. Yeah, I think their what name was around what time? The seventh century. That early, wow. Yep, seventh wow. and eighth century. Supposedly started by Syrians, and well, everybody along the Silk Road, you know, came. You know, there were Manichaeans, there were Nestorians, Syrian Christian missionaries, and so I think they all kind of amalgamated into this group in China called the Church of the Light or the. Duckian, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and they had their own gospels as well, and it's kind of like, uh, well, I think Thomas Merton and Thich Nhat Hanh would have really liked their stuff because it's this Buddhist-Christian fusion or hybrid. Oh, yeah, I would agree, too. I mean, of course, and then you've got uh, the sayings of Jesus in Islam, which are great, much huh? more dualistic, very mm -hmm. intense. Uh, so, yeah, this wisdom's all over the place. So why don't we get to vegetarianism in ancient time? I'm sure most people would assume rightly that in the West... It really began with uh, Pythagoras and his movement. Of course, you mentioned it is true. The Gnostics were called the sons and daughters of Pythagoras. So were many of the other aesthetic groups. Right. And uh, the cult of Orpheus, is that where it started? And why was it started? The, why did these individuals decide to renounce meat? Well, I think that um, there's a case to be made that Pythagoras was influenced by Eastern thought might have been a student of an Eastern teacher. Uh, and there's a slight influence of Upanishads. Some have tried to suggest there's a slight parallels with certain Upanishads and who knows what was at the Library of Alexandria. Uh, 
So in any case, yeah, they had a pretty well-developed, you know, the West has always tried to have a developed system or school, and then it gets wiped out or bad things happen and it gets rebooted (laughs) too soon. Um, But Pythagoras, yes, was vegetarian and the Pythagoreans were vegetarians and were a big influence on all of these groups, the Essenes, the Hermetic philosophy, Judaism, Christianity, Gnosticism. In the Nag Hammadi, there is a book called The Sentences of Sextus, and the full name is The Sentences of Sextus, the the Pythagorean. And there are other books out there that have the whole collection of The Sentences of Sextus. And that's a Pythagorean holy book or piece of one, piece of a Pythagorean text in the Nag Hammadi. Uh, So they were, I I think, without Pythagoreanism, you wouldn't have the vegetarianism of uh, the Jewish tradition, the Essenes. I think they were very influenced by Greek thought and especially Pythagoras. Uh, Pythagoreanism was against animal sacrifice, And that was kind of intertwined, not only vegetarianism, but against animal ritual sacrifice. And, of course, that became a huge tenant of Essene Judaism. And their grandkids, the Ebionites, or Jesus movement, uh, they were very opposed to the Jewish temple uh, doing animal sacrifices. And that was a big thing, that big dispute with... uh, with Paul versus the Jesus movement. They they were arguing as early as 50 AD about vegetarianism and whether it's okay to eat animals that had been sacrificed in pagan temples. And so that, that was like a big, big deal back then. Um, Paul was arguing with vegetarian Christians in his letters. And that means the Jesus movement, you know, that, that original group, you know, he was arguing with the original group or Christianity before Paul, as I call it. Uh, they also have been called the poor or Ebionites, Nazareans. Uh, eventually they're called, there's a group or splinter off of them called the Elkasites and the prophet Manny grew up in an Elkasite household. And so, that's vegetarianism, Sabbath keeping, and, you know, kind of a Jewish Christian orientation that he inherited. Um, so, yeah. You know, James, let's back up for a second. Yep. And it should be mentioned, too, I don't know if there's a, a line to follow here, but uh, Pythagoras did spend time, I think, in Persia. And, of course, he was uh, deputized by a, a shaman. Obviously, in Zoroastrianism, there it's completely against animal sacrifice. I don't know if you, there is a vegetarian movement, but it's something to check. So, I mean, again, we're speculating a lot, but yeah, as far as where he got his teachings from, you know, because Pythagoras believed in reincarnation <laughs> and was uh, that's dead. a good reason for because uh, you might be eating your family next <laughs> to your hmm. ancestors, right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes, so that's he, a good point. And, and, and yeah. but this is different. I understand the, you know, the, the cult of Orpheus and Pythagoras. It was really about compassion, the idea of reincarnation and breaking through the cycle of death and suffering and just kind of being outside. But in Judaism, 
you're talking about James and uh, a lot of the the first uh, you might say Jewish Christians. Yeah. Was that the reason? Because I think I've read that James, the brother of the Lord, was vegetarian because they were afraid. He and his group they were afraid of preparing the meat wrong for Jehovah, or again, it might have been touched by pagans or been offered to uh, a pagan god. It was, them, it was more uh, to do with the, the laws of Moses than anything. I am, yeah, I'm not really sure what, if there was a, a, a narrow def, you know, de- reason for it. Uh, they seem to be completely vegetarian and not kosher. Uh, and they, the Essenes the, that they were close to, I, I think of early Christianity as being very close to Essene Judaism. They both liked the book of First Enoch and were Messianic. And there are different messiahs that some people chose. You know, there's more than one messiah to choose from back then. But the Jewish Christians are, are you know, Messianic, read the book of Enoch, and... Uh, were very close to the Essenes who are not really criticized in the New Testament, like those Sadducees and Pharisees were. They were the bad guys. Uh, and so that's kind of an Essene orientation. Although I must say that I don't think of the early Christians as being Essene. I know there are some neo-Essene vegetarian groups out there, and, but, and they kind of use the word Essene to cover everybody you know different christian groups too they put under that label which i don't i i tend to think of the jesus movement as the ebionites and that the ebionitism and nazareanism came out of essene judaism you know that they like it became separate sects within judaism even as essenism is sort of a separate sect a bigger separate sect of Judaism. And the Therapute, do you see them as the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls? Or what's your view? Because it gets, oh, yeah. it gets confusing. Yeah, they were a vegetarian group too. Philo of Alexandria writes about the Therapute, where we get the word healer from. Uh, they had the this co-ed monastery, <laughs> intentional community out in uh, near a lake uh, near Alexandria, Egypt. And were, I think that's the first instance that the word monastery, the Greek word for monastery, was used for a particular group, uh, not a Christian monastery, but a Jewish sect practicing monasticism, uh, Alexandria. They were vegetarians. Philo gives a description of their lifestyle, how they had separate huts and were kind of like hermits, but would come together on the Sabbath for a communal gathering and 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 meals and he described them as being vegetarian and i i think of the therapeute as probably being an, another name for essene perhaps a a, a a a egyptian branch of essenism um but the same idea you know a community near a big lake, or in the case of Qumran, you have the, de- the Dead Sea and that group there at uh, Qumran. Uh, we, we have writings from the Essenes of Qumran, but don't really have much of a description of what went on there. But in the case of the Therapeutae, we have descriptions of their lifestyle, but not their writings. 
it, it, Philo said they had writings besides the Old Testament or Torah that they used, but we don't really have any discovery site where texts have turned up. Uh, but yeah, they're a vegetarian group, probably Essene or some cousin of the Essenes. Um, they're in uh, Al- near Alexandria, Egypt. Awesome. Well said. And uh, Nate, do you have a question for James or how do anything from the chat room? Uh, there's a few, Miguel. Um, there was the super chat question, which was super relevant, but there's a few others that have been asked. I'll give you um, one or two of them. So um, one of the really interesting ones was, what about the reopening of the third temple in Jerusalem demands animal sacrifice asked by Chad Warren? And um, there's another question here. This is more, um, this is very cool. Uh, Logoi Library asks, what are people's thoughts on different races, genetic makeups being able to benefit or not benefit from either being vegetarian or eating meat? And I think I'd extend that to the blood types and just different types of people across the world. And there was one more general question about Valentinius, the first to come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. And that was Ben. So uh, that's all I got for you, Miguel. All right. Well, for Valentinus, that is Eusebius who says, which is always strange because they spent these centuries lambasting the Gnostics, but then Eusebius goes, oh, and Valentinus came with the doctrine of the Trinity. He's like, well, you're just supporting one of your greatest theologies came from a damn heretic. So, but it's Eusebius. You got to take him with a grain of salt. But any of those questions you want to address, James? Um, The blood type thing, I think, was declared to be a, a myth. Uh, there was a book, a popular book that was written that, that I think has been been written off as not accurate about, you know, if you're a certain blood type, you can't be veg and, or something like that. Uh, opening the new temple and having the return of sacrifices in uh, like a third Jewish temple, that's going to be a, can we say shit show here? It's not going to fly well. Yeah, yeah, I I just have this uh, apocalyptic, uh, dystopian view of that whole scene. Um, Yeah, why don't you just let the Aztecs (laughs) restart sacrifice in Mexico City? Yeah, while we're at it. Yeah, uh, I think that's, I mean, the Middle East is sort of dystopian on a full-time basis on a good day. And I can't imagine what life will be like if they're doing that. That's like quite a a war between uh, Judaism and, and Islam. Which it already is, so I can't imagine what that will be like to turn the temperature up higher in uh, Jerusalem on the on the dome of the the rock there. Uh, uh, I did want to mention a few things about the early Jesus movement and the Gospel of Thomas. Just kind of put together like a little brief synopsis. Sure. Um, yeah. First, would you mind answering? So, Paul yeah. is Paul. I've heard that Paul might have been vegetarian. I mean, he wasn't telling people he was vegetarian to be, but he himself might have been vegetarian. Have you heard anything about that, James? Well, yeah, I do have an opinion on that because the Gnostics liked Paul. Elaine Pagels wrote this book, The Gnostic Paul. And so they did not think of Paul as an adversary, a a pro-meat kind of guy. He was their saint. I mean, a lot of Gnostics like Paul. So I think, I've given this a lot of thought, I think Paul's disagreement with the Jerusalem 
the original disciples led by James the Just, uh, I think it was about an approach to spread Christianity. Uh, and I think Paul had kind of an early version of what the Manichaeans eventually were, were practicing, where you have new converts who have a looser ethical code, not really worrying about diet so much. Uh, the, he, the, the, the new converts, part of the outer circle of believers. The hearers. The hearers of the, the word. Perfects. Yes. And then there is an inner circle uh, of initiates being perfected in gnosis and wisdom. And they were vegetarian. I think that was his format. That's what you have in Manichaean Gnosticism eventually. And I think that was what he wanted to do, have more of a mystery school approach to it. Uh, whereas the, the, the Jerusalem group says, one thing for everybody, you know, become vegetarian. And they didn't have this outer circle, inner circle kind of distinction. So I think in that sense, we can maybe sign up Paul for the vegetarian cause in that sense, because uh, the Gnostics liked Paul, you know, for them, he was not the adversary uh, and they didn't have any quarrel with him. So I, I think they, the, you know, that same inner outer format you find uh, discussed in uh, the, the secret gospel of Mark saga, you know, mm -hmm. that there was a secret gospel of Mark right. for the initiates and Clement of Alexandria used the term gnosis and initiation. And so I think even within Alexandrian Christianity, the so-called Orthodox world, you may also find that distinction. You know, you have like new Christians and then initiates that are a bit further along. Um, and I, th I think they had some, maybe some version of that as well. Awesome. Well, you want to talk now about the Gospel of Thomas and uh, what are you going to talk about? Yeah, yeah. The, the Gospel of Thomas, I think of as a text not just read by the Gnostics, but by other groups too. It's quoted by Syrian Christian mystics. Uh, the, there's a saying of Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas that's quoted by St. Augustine. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think Thomas... What's the saying? You can get the boy out of the Gnosticism, or you can get the Gnosticism out of the boy. <laughs> uh, I've got it right. It's such a neat thing. to, to It kind of throws it. Yeah, for, for the audience, Augustine was a Manichaean, and he went to Catholicism, but uh, both friend and foe still claim that he never changed his stripes, really. It was all a play. But anyway, go ahead, James. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I, I love quoting this because it throws a glitch into the matrix of orthodoxy because some, sometimes these folks that are claimed by orthodoxy aren't quite as orthodox as uh, uh, like St. Pacomius and up there near Nag Hammadi, for instance. Yeah, uh, against the adversary of the law and the prophets, 2.4.14, St. Augustine. But when the apostles asked what should be thought about the prophets of the Jews who were thought to have sung something in the past about his coming, he was disturbed that they should still think such things and replied, 
quote, you have abandoned the living one who is before you and are talking about the dead. Uh, and that is Gospel of Thomas saying 52, his disciples said to him, 24 prophets spoke in Israel and did all of them speak about you? He said to them, you have neglected the living one in front of you and spoken of the dead. So I think Augustine was a reader of uh, Thomas. Uh, now, the, the Gospel of Thomas turns up, uh, uh, Origin of Alexandria quoted it, uh, Clement of Alexandria uh, quoted, I, the, there's a bunch of, uh, I've got them in my notes here. Uh, let's see, Oxyrhynchus Thomas, let the one seeking not stop seeking until he finds, and when he finds, he will marvel, and marveling he will reign, and reigning he will rest. And that turns up a couple of times in uh, Clement of Alexandria. Uh, Macarius of Egypt, you know, the saying about the, uh, from, what is it, saying 113, the kingdom of God is spread out upon the earth, but people don't see it. Macarius of Syria quotes that in his writing. So it's just neat to see that. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 was battling with the wisdom Christians, which I think is another term for the Thomas Christians who like parables and sayings a lot. And he quotes uh, something that resembles saying 17, you know, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no hand has touched, and what has never occurred to the, the mind of man, that I will give you. You know, that is, is in the Gospel of Thomas, it's in Manichaean and Mandaean scriptures, it's in apocryphal gospels attributed to Jesus and two other, two other New Testament gospels. Uh, it's in the Koran eventually, <laughs> too. It's quoted in the Koran, that saying. That's a very popular saying that pops up now and then. Uh, the Gospel of the Hebrews, the saying about, uh, uh, what is it, seeking and finding, uh, that turns up, you know, uh, the saying from the Gospel of Thomas is attributed to the Gospel of the Hebrews, in the writings of Clement of Alexandria. And so I think there's some overlap there. And I want to mention saying 12 of the Gospel of Thomas says, wherever you are, you are to go to James the Just, for whose sake heaven and earth came into existence. And so for me, that makes the Gospel of Thomas uh, part of that uh, Ebionite Jewish Christian realm. And there may be some other sayings that were added to the Gospel of Thomas that we have from the Coptic that came from elsewhere. But I think the core of Thomas goes back to Q, the source gospel material, you know, uh, and that Thomas tradition. So I would say and Thomas— And it should be mentioned, too, again, I'm trying to—as we try to understand why these groups decided to go vegetarian or not— we talked about compassion, reincarnation, maybe preparing meat, but 
for the Gospel of Thomas and maybe the Ebionites too, it was to return to an Edenic state, right? To do everything yes. you could to get back in time, lift the veil of this illusion, whoever put this illusion, error, the demiurge, and get back to the Garden of Eden, which obviously man and animal lived in peace. Yes, that's an important key point. Mystic paths uh, that have that present tense kingdom of God, and Thomas is in that camp. Uh, the kingdom of God is right now. We don't have, it's not up there in the sky, in the by and by. Uh, we don't have to wait for it to come with signs to be observed. It's a present tense reality. And so people that embrace that uh, tend to think of that as the return to paradise, return to Eden. And groups like that include the diet of Eden as part of their spirituality. Uh, so yes, that is very much uh, at the heart of a lot of this, uh, I think, mystical tradition and, you know, to get back to Eden, get back to that lost, lost original realm. And yeah, that's one of the, one of the things they become vegetarian. Yeah. That's part of, part of that's a very, I'm glad you thought of that. Cause that's, that's a key key uh part of the psychology i think with a lot of these mystic groups and prophecies of the future too uh, helping isaiah out you know in the future you know isaiah talks about the ideal is a vegetarian utopia and some people say okay isaiah let's do this <laughs> you know that's why wait you know uh, yeah, uh, he talks about uh, the wolf and the lamb laying down together although yeah. of course people say with the mandela effect it used to be the lion and the lamb laying down together i, ah. I always thought it was the lion and the lamb laying yeah. down together what about you nate what did you <laughs> wasn't it wasn't it the lamb lays down over broadway <laughs> that's Genesis. <laughs> and getting back to the garden, that's that song Woodstock by uh God, who was the name of the oh, singer? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh back oh uh oh. oh yeah, yes. I think she did uh Yellow Taxi. Is that the one who did it? It's, oh my god, I'm forgetting too. And then it was covered by uh the trio. Oh my god, I'm drawing a blank. I must have coronavirus because I'm forgetting, or antinosis, or yeah. Back to the garden. Yeah, that is definitely a, a, a gnostic theme, and uh, a mystic theme. Lie down with the cat. I'm hearing a cat now. So. Yes, uh, the cat. <laughs> Hold on, I have to let the cat out. Hold on. Oh, no, I've got the dog bothering me. One second, guys. This is just a random moment to give love to animals. Part of gnosis is no actual heaven right now, as we're saying. Are so you know back to the show and such. <laughs> All right. Well, we know the dog will lie down with the cat. They're yes, friends, exactly. but uh, cat wants yeah. to go out. Yes. But anyway, we're getting. Um, now there you go, Joni Mitchell. Thank you, Joni Super Mitchell. Superfluous pastry, and then Crosby, Stills and Nash. And ah, oh my yes. God! Ding, ding, ding! Crosby, Stills and Nash. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to put in a, a word for the uh, a, a good word for the Ebionites because they are, I think, the bridge between uh, Christianity and some Gnostic, later Gnostic movements, uh, Elkasites to Manichaean for instance. And so here you have uh, James the Just, who is called the brother of Jesus by everyone. 
and he's described as a vegetarian, and saying 12 Gospel of Thomas, he becomes the leader of this group. Uh, Robert Eisenman has a book on, on James the Just, and, and uh, uh, St. Augustine once again uh, said that uh, James the Just was vegetarian, and he becomes the leader of the, the church that uh, Paul gets to fight with you know, uh, there early on. Uh, there are references. I have a, a list of them in my, my e-booklet uh, to Thomas being vegetarian, James the Just being vegetarian, John being vegetarian, John the Baptist, the other John also being vegetarian, uh, Peter being very staunchly vegetarian. And so uh, people may ask the question, if you have a vegetarian religion based in Jerusalem, headed by the Jesus's brother, does that can can that mean also that Jesus himself was a vegetarian? Because in, in what world do you have a religion founded by a meat-eating Messiah that goes veg? Uh, you know, it, it just something's not quite adding up there. <laughs> yeah, I know you have an answer, but yes, he's got the, the fish, the, the multiplying of the fish, the Passover ah, meal. What yeah. is going on with that, James? What is going on with that? Well, you have dueling gospel traditions, like uh, Buddhist, Buddhism has dueling uh, sutras, you know, some in a veg camp and others coming from a pro-meat camp. And in Christianity, you have dueling gospel traditions. You have gospels that the followers of Paul eventually adopted as sacred scripture, the ones we're familiar with in the, in the Roman and European world, Christianity, Catholicism, Protestantism now, Greek Orthodoxy. But the Ebionites had their own gospels. And in those gospels, Jesus didn't eat the Passover lamb. Uh, John the Baptist didn't eat locusts, but locust beans or carob. And the apostles, whatever they used to be up to, some of them probably were fishermen hanging out in good old Galilee. But the Sunday school notion of, you know, the, the disciples opening up a fish market in Galilee and years and years and years go by and they're still selling fish and involved in fish, that apparently isn't true. If, if you read the Ebionite writings, like the Clementine homilies, for instance, these guys became vegetarians and was, I mean, you, you can list almost all of the apostles as saying that they were vegetarian. Thomas, in the Acts of Thomas, uh, you know, mentions being a vegetarian. So they were very vegetarian and they were fighting with Paul over, over diet. So Paul is actually our earliest witness to the vegetarianism of the Jesus movement because he's fighting with them in the New Testament, and his uh, letters date between 53 and 57 A.D. And that's pretty early. That's earlier than uh, the Gospels. <laughs> so they they had their own Gospels: Gospel of the Ebionites, Gospel of the Hebrews, Gospel of the Nazareans, and those writings are quoted by some of the early church fathers. They're mostly gone, mostly lost text, except for the quotes found in the early church fathers. Uh, but some of those early church fathers uh, seem to not only have had those writings, but were influenced by them, like Hieronymus, uh, 
can I read that? There's uh, I, if I can scroll yeah, down, because do. uh, these folks, uh, some of the early church fathers that had access to, well, I can click on this one here. Uh, St. Peter, uh, the apostle Matthew partook of seeds and nuts, hard shelled fruits and vegetables without flesh. Clement of Alexandria. In my ebook, I've got a whole list of these things. James was the veg, uh, all the apostles. Um, James, the brother of Jesus, lived on seeds and vegetables and did not accept meat or wine. St. Augustine. And then Hieronymus, also known as Jerome, St. Jerome, once said, the consumption of animal flesh was unknown up until the great flood. But since the great flood, we have had animal flesh stuffed into our mouths. Jesus, the Christ who appeared when the time was fulfilled, again, joined the end to the beginning so that we are now no longer allowed to eat animal flesh. Uh, St. Jerome or Hanonymous, who apparently, Hieronymus, who apparently read the gospel of the Hebrews and sounded like he totally you know, embraced that. Uh, Origin of Alexandria was a vegetarian. Uh, St. Basil the Great, the steam of meat meals darkens the spirit. One can hardly have virtue if one enjoys meat meals and feasts. In the earthly paradise or Eden, no one sacrificed animals and no one ate meat. So that Orthodox Church fathers, you know, were advocating vegetarianism, and some of them quoted uh, the Gospel of the Hebrews. Um, I, I would say just briefly that if anyone wishes they could access the Ebionite Jewish Christianity that got wiped out so long ago, Paul argued against them and marginalized them gave James a little a teeny epistle at the end of the New Testament. Usually the elders get to sit up front or on the stage. James was in the back of the bus there, back of the New Testament next to Jude. Uh, but, you know, so I, I would say the Gospel of Thomas, the reconstructed attempts at Q, uh, the Odes of Solomon, which isn't really by Solomon, but a collection of very Jewish Christian uh, hymns, psalms of the first century, uh, and a huge collection of surviving Ebionite writings would be something called the Clementine Homilies and the Recognitions of Clement. That is a huge body of literature that has not been st stamped out, not been wiped out by orthodoxy. Uh, and it presents, it's, it's like a giant, I think, I think one of your earlier guests uh, called it a, a Ebionite book of Acts. Um, um, it's, it's a huge collection of Ebionite writings, pro-vegetarian writings, and uh, just look for the Clementine homilies. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one that has made it to the 21st century unscathed. Where, <laughs> you know, whereas the Gospel of the Hebrews is only a few quotes, you know, kicked right. around by Epiphanius and, you know, our, the early church historian, Eusebius, I think his name was 
quotes. Right, there. right. Uh, Wonderful. And yes, uh, again, we, for those of you who uh, joined late, we've got James Bean, as we're talking about vegetarianism and Gnosticism, ancient religion. We're keeping it historical. I know it's gotten a little lively in the chat room with people giving their issues, and that's fine. Everybody should have a perspective, and it's all good. Nate, do you see any questions, or do you have a question for James, my friend? Holly Gavoltz, let me see if I can get this, because um, the Eastern tradition would obviously probably approach us, like, so let's just bring it, just for the Western mysteries, it seems that the Christ figure, um, when in that quote, uh, was talking about that he made it so that we couldn't eat meat, because I was immediately struck by that he's talking after the flood, whenever you hear that, like, and so I was wondering, you know, was this a result of, without going into Nephilim and genetics and tampering, or maybe we should, Maybe Christ was the thing or some kind of one of the many metaphors for Christ that made it so that that meat eating was, you know, his sacrifice made it that it was once again, now we don't need to do the Aztec. Now we don't need to eat the animal. I was looking in this old, um, one of the sacred texts, and it talks about certain meats that are good for the body, you know, positive um air being as positive for the vital life force and you draw air into your lungs and most of us don't breathe well you know you really need to clean out yourself all the time and then the food itself being of a negative and the uh drink being of a negative but basically um <laughs> i'm just wondering if the crucifixion is some kind of metaphor for the you know cessation of the need to eat the flesh so, you know because this thing was talking about horse meat so, you know, just wondering. Well, the, for some, yeah, the sacrifice of Christ negates the old system, the Jewish sacrifices. Uh, of course, they were already against sacrifices. But, yeah, that, that, that plays into uh, even mainstream Christianity. Uh, the sacrifice of Christ means no longer the need for animal sacrifice in the Jewish temple. And Hieronymus, that quote I shared earlier from Hieronymus or St. Jerome, that, you know, Christ came and now we don't need to, you know, eat meat. Uh, that is an Ebionite point of view uh, that, um, that he is espousing there about uh, the role of Christ. And, yeah, there's no need for sacrifice. I'm, I'm not sure that they really believed in sacrifice anyway. <laughs> uh, in fact, Jesus, the the whole the story of the the turning the tables of the money changers over in the Gospel of John, we think of that as being about money changing, but uh, there are a lot of animals involved in sacrifice in the temple of Jerusalem, and he actually lets loose these animals. And then he's crucified uh, after that. So, so in that story, animals that would have been sacrificed in the temple are let loose. And that was the final straw before the crucifixion. And yeah, according to the synoptics, yeah, I think in the, in the Gospel of John, it's uh, bringing back Lazarus from the dead that gets them. That gets them. That's just one step too far. Yeah, necromancy. <laughs> but yeah, the synoptics is uh, the temple. The temple. Overturning. Yeah, and we think of that as being about money and money changers, but uh, he cracks the whip and drives out the animals. And, uh, and so, and Keith Akers and his, his writings, you know, really kind of uh, 
uh, focuses on that as being about, you know, animal liberation uh, and that that was the final straw, that that was taken on the priesthood uh, running the, the temple. And then he gets, Jesus gets arrested and, uh, and, and uh, executed, you know, and that is really practicing, uh, um, you know, resistance against temple sacrifice, you know, when you're actually letting animals out, you know, that is going against the system. It is indeed, and it should be mentioned too, I believe it's the prophet Jeremiah who complains about animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. So yeah, it was, yeah. there, was the, there was these struggles even within Judaism, within the temple of what should we do. It wasn't uh, cut and dry, if you would. Yeah, yeah, the whole basis for Essene Judaism, I mean, it's kind of a segue, a kind of a growth or evolution uh, in, in Judaism. And yeah, that was going on prior, that was going on centuries prior to the time of Christ and the Ebionites, this evolution away from literal sacrifices uh, and kind of spiritualizing that and having a sacrifice of praise and prayer and making it an inward and spiritual sort of thing instead of a literal animal sacrifice sort of thing. Indeed, indeed. And uh, I guess, what about the Nag Hammadi Library itself? Oh, yes. uh, why don't we go, uh, what are some instances that promotes vegetarianism? Well, specifically, there is, and I've got it uh, somewhere in my notes here, uh, the Prayer of Thanksgiving, one of the Nag Hammadi texts, one of the Gnostic Gospels, found in 19, December of 1945 by Muhammad Ali El-Saman, uh, discovering this clay jar containing Coptic papyri. Uh, the, the prayer of thanksgiving has this beautiful prayer, and then at the end it says, when they had said these things in the prayer, they embraced each other, and they went to eat their holy food, which has no blood in it. And in the Gnostic scriptures, the Marvin Meyer uh, publication, translation of the Nag Hammadi, he has a footnote, uh, vegetarian food was his uh, footnote there. Now, that same prayer found in the Nag Hammadi library that ends with this vegetarian reference about a kind of a love feast, a you know, communal meal, vegetarian communal meal. Uh, that same passage is also found in the epilogue of Asclepius in the Corpus Hermeticum. And so here are some other alternate translations of that same ending of the prayer. Sir Walter Scott, having prayed thus, let us betake ourselves to a meal unpolluted by flesh of living things. G.R.S. Mead translation. With this desire, we now betake to our pure and fleshless meal. And finally, the Brian Copenhaver translation of Hermetica renders it, uh, with such hopes we turn to a pure meal that includes no living thing. Uh, so that's uh, in the Nag Hammadi <laughs> and in the Hermetic tradition. So I'm not sure if it's a, I, I guess the prayer of Thanksgiving is a Hermetic text popular with Gnostics, and thus it ends up in both collections, you know, the Nag Hammadi scriptures and the 
Hermetica. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of our interview with James Bean. We continue in our second part in a friendly and historical exploration. Although the chat room got a bit heated, and you'll see this with some of the questions. At the end of the day, as the Oracle told Neo in the Matrix, make up your own damn mind. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feed from AB Prime or Patreon. Both work in the podcast provider of your choice. So please become a member patron and support this red pill cafeteria. Go to the God Above God Dad Kim for means to assist and get all the infernal rewards. Or just contact my ass. I can't do it without you. And if you've got holes in your pockets due to the monkey shines of Archons, just message me and I'll give you a show on the house. No worries and do it all the time. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.